God, we are desperate for you to speak in our lives. We're desperate to not just be uh, in the middle of circumstances and relationships, but to hear you speaking and to sense you leading. So we look to you this morning in Ruth chapter 2, and we, we want to see how your faithful hand works itself out in our lives, even when your hand is mysterious, even when the things you're doing in our lives don't necessarily make sense to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide, that you would lift up Christ, that you would strengthen your people, that you would call the dead to life, those this morning who haven't put their faith in Christ, those who haven't turned from their sins to trust him. I pray that you would work in their hearts, young or old, help them to place their faith in him. We look to you now and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Corey Ten Boom and family are famous for hiding Jews in their home during the Nazi occupation of Holland during World War II. And a conversation that Corey had with her father when she was a little girl stuck with her the rest of her life. Now, Corey's amazing mom, who was ill herself chronically, had just taken food to a family who had lost a young baby. And Corey went with her mom, and the image of that little child was lodged in her head, and she couldn't get rid of it. And so that night, as her dad tucked her in, as he did every night, she pled with him, Daddy, don't die. And Casper Ten Boom's response to her daughter, to his daughter, is worth remembering. He said, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam on the train, when do I give you the train ticket? And Corey sniffed, and then she replied, why, it's just before we get on the train. Exactly, her father replied. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes for some of us, that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need for the moment. Now, the Ten Boom family were genuine followers of Jesus, and the strength they were looking for in their hearts was not strength that's generated from themselves. It's strength generated from the presence of the Holy Spirit working in them. And Corey would need to refresh that story often during her tremendously difficult but utterly glorious life. Though God will often lead through hardships, through suffering, through trials, through difficulty, Corey would learn time and time again that God can be trusted, that God can be depended upon, that God can supply what we need when we need it. The train ticket, in other words, will come at just the right time from the hand of a loving father. Naomi and Ruth will discover this in Ruth chapter 2 this morning as well. Brian helped us to sit down in the hopelessness of Ruth 1 last week. Feelings of hopelessness that all of us can be tempted to feel and relate to. And Brian reminded us through God's word in Ruth chapter 2 that if we, despite what we can see, despite what we can see, we have reason to feel hope, trusting in God to keep his promises. Despite what we can see, we have reason for hope, trusting God to keep his promises. And in chapter 2, we begin to see God's faithful yet secret and mysterious plans working themselves out in Ruth and Naomi's life. 
they will begin to see how God mysteriously works faithfully on their behalf. And here's the main idea this morning. Depend upon God's mysterious but always faithful provision in our lives. Depend upon God's sometimes mysterious, always faithful provision in our lives. Ruth 2 is an invitation. It's an invitation to the hearts of God's people to depend on Him and to walk with Him through every difficulty that He brings us to, and to look, to anticipate, to hunt for His provision. In verses 1 through 7, God will provide Ruth and Naomi with a productive field. The narrator of this story hints at where this is all headed in verse 1. And we have to remember that as the reader, we have far more information than Ruth and Naomi have about what's happening in this story. The narrator is telling us things that they don't know. Look at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. We meet Boaz in verse 1, and we can already tell that he's going to be kind of a big deal in this story. He's a relative of Naomi's husband from, the, from Elimelech's clan. He's a close family clan member, and that's going to be helpful later. And then the narrator tells us something important about Boaz's character. The ESV translates it a worthy man. Boaz was a worthy man. The NIV goes with a man of standing. The NASB says a man of great wealth. The CSB says that he's a prominent, he's a man prominent and of noble character, which probably captures the most of what this expansive word has in mind. When you look at this word elsewhere in the Old Testament, you find a word that's used to translate strength, moral worth, wealth, and even military might. And I'm spending time here because I think it helps to put a vision of Boaz in our minds as we enter this story. He's a man of gravitas and standing, a man who's respected and relied upon and admired, a man of impeccable character. He's discerning and wise. He takes initiative, moving toward hard things, not avoiding them. And as the story unfolds, we see that the narrator is not exaggerating by calling Boaz a worthy man. Boaz, we'll find, is as special as Ruth. But let's not jump ahead. Look at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to Naomi, uh, and Naomi said to Ruth, go my daughter. Ruth, we've already seen, is a remarkable individual. Last week in Ruth 1, we saw her courage and her loyalty to Naomi. She's a young widow who decides to leave the land of her people and travel to a land that she does not know with her mother-in-law. In her day and in her culture, there is no clear path to a successful life. She has assumed a tremendous risk. She has limited options of getting a job that's going to meet her needs and the needs of her mother-in-law. She is risking a good life and headed toward a life on the edge of significant poverty. Yet she assumes this risk because she thinks it's the right thing to do. But we find this morning that she's more than just loyal and courageous. Ruth's worth ethic is revealed here as well. She's going to do what she can do to provide for her family. She's going to play the hand that she's been dealt 
as wisely as she can play it, relying on the strength of her own back. Ruth, we're told, is going to glean, not harvest. She's going to pick up after the harvesters what they miss as they work. She's going to ask permission to trail behind and to wander off to the field's edges to pick up what's left over after the harvesters have come through. Now, it's not a given that she's going to receive permission to do this. She's hoping that she'll find favor with some owner and be able to do this work. Now, verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now, the narrator is extremely intentional here. He says she just so happened to chance upon the field owned by Boaz. It's as, as if the narrator says with an excited smile and a wink, well, what do you know? She just so happens to come upon this particular field. What a coincidence. Now, this whole plot reveals the faithful but somewhat mysterious way that God works to be our refuge. Ruth and Naomi understand what's happening here. They don't understand what's happening here. They are blind to the faithful unfolding plans of God. They're not seeing what we're seeing as the readers of this story. They can't see what God is up to. But God leads them, led them to this particular field owned by this particular man. And this particular man just happened to come to this particular field at this particular time to see this particular woman. The narrator wants us to feel this in the story. Now, there are times when God's hand is so evident that we can almost see the chess pieces see his hand moving the chess pieces on the board. When they were in their final concentration camp, Corey and her sister Betsy recall the vitamin drop bottle that never seemed to empty. She gave out vitamin drop after vitamin drop after vitamin drop to person after person after person, and she never, it never seemed to empty. And that miracle continued until the moment a fellow prisoner arrived with a pocket full of chewable vitamins. And at that moment, there was no more drops in the vitamin bottle. Betsy also recounts smuggling a Bible into the camp. How every woman in line before Betsy and after her was checked. And Betsy moves through that line with the Bible strapped to her back and is never checked at all. There are times when God's hand is so unbelievably evident in our lives. But there are times when God's hand is mysterious. There are times when we crawl in the dark, unsure and unsteady of the road ahead. There are times when we feel alone or even abandoned, when God feels almost continents away. In their final dormitory, Corey and Betsy when they crawled into their beds, discovered that fleas had infested the soil, soiled straw that they had to sleep in. And Betsy challenged her sister Corey to thank God for the fleas, even if they could not understand why God had permitted them. Now, it was weeks later that they discovered how the flea infestation kept the guards out of the dormitory. And in the absence of the guards in the dormitory, they were able to lead a church service together every evening. Ruth and Naomi have very 
little idea at this point that God's hand is actively at work in their circumstances, that God's heart is undeterred and undistracted, and that his plans for their lives are actually surging ahead. They can't see it, but there is a faithful God who is causing the events of their life to surge forward according to his faithful plans. Friends, whether or not you see God's hand at work in your life or not, whether God's hand seems obvious or mysterious to you, depend on Him. Whether you see His hand at work in your life or not, depend upon the Lord. His faithfulness never falters. He is always a steady refuge in every storm, in every moment of your life. God invites us to walk with Him in Ruth chapter 2. He invites us to stay near Him, to refuge with Him, to take refuge and shelter in Him. Psalm 91 says, He who walks in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now look at verse 4 and 5. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now notice that Boaz's character is already on display. He gives this godly greeting to his workers. First, he comes to check on his field. He gives a godly greeting to his workers, and they respond with a godly greeting back. He's also observant. He sees this young woman in the field, and he understands that she's not normal. It's not normal for her to be there. She's not one of his employees. And so he asked, who is this woman? Look at verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz's field supervisor reveals that this is the woman, this is the young Moabite woman who we've heard about. Ruth's story, her reputation goes before her. The people of Bethlehem have heard about this particular Moabite who came back to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And we're going to find out in a few minutes that that's already been an encouragement to Boaz. But now he learns and he connects the dot that this hardworking young woman is the same woman who left her own land and her own people to come to Bethlehem to find shelter with Israel's God. Now, the question for us then is how will Boaz respond to this Moabite woman who's in the field? God has provided a productive field, but how will Boaz, the owner, respond to this particular woman? The second thing God provides to Naomi and Ruth is a righteous owner. This is verses 8 through 17. In verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now Boaz's first words to Ruth reveal at once tenderness and protection. He invites or maybe implores her to stay in the field to the young woman, young women who work for him. And then he discloses what he's already warned his young men to avoid. Don't touch this woman. 
Now, why does Boaz feel the need to tell his young men not to touch this young woman and to tell Ruth that he's already warned them? Well, first, remember that Ruth is taking place in the middle of the time of the judges. And a quick reading through the book of Judges reveals how young women can be treated during this time in Israel. But second, Ruth is a widow living with a widowed mother-in-law, and in her culture and at her time, she's not only economically vulnerable, but there's no one to protect them from someone who would do harm. Now look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Humility and sincerity flow from Ruth's heart. She doesn't view herself as a victim of her circumstance. She's not feeling entitled to anything. And so when it comes, when this gift comes, she responds not with a sense of entitlement, but with a sense of humility and gratitude. Arrogant feelings of self-pity have been smothered by a grateful heart in Ruth. And so she says, why are you showing me favor? I'm a foreigner. I'm a foreigner. Why are you showing me favor? And these next two verses are critical to understanding the heart of this passage. Look at verses 11 and 12. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your, the day of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, why am I doing this? I'm doing this because of the remarkable thing that you've done in Israel. You left your father, your mother, you left your family, you left all that was wonderful and familiar to you, and you came because you felt it was the right thing to do. You risked everything to come, and you left your home, and you left the gods of Moab, and you came to Israel to take refuge in the God of Israel. That's why I'm doing these things to you. And as you stepped out in faith to take refuge under the God of Israel, may you experience His rich blessing upon you. That's, Ruth, why I'm doing these things for you. And in verse 13, she expresses more humble gratitude. And then in verse 14, Boaz invites her over to eat lunch with his workers, gives her roasted grain to eat. She eats till she's full, and she sets some aside for later. And as they get up to work again that afternoon, Boaz intends to act more graciously toward her. Look at verses 15 through 17. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Boaz tells his staff to go above and beyond for Ruth's sake. I don't want her just picking from the leftovers. Let her glean from the sheaves themselves and then pull some out of the bundles full and lay them on the ground for her to pick up. Now, there aren't many harvesters from 2000 BC or 1000 BC in the room this morning, so some background might be helpful. God is concerned for the vulnerable people 
like widows, like orphans, like people from distant lands, people who would have had a very difficult time working hard and meeting their own needs. God is concerned for them. Now, Proverbs is also filled with colorfully illustrated warnings to lazy people who can work but refuse to work. For example, Proverbs 10.26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Or my favorite, Proverbs 26.14, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. So God is not concerned, or He is concerned to warn the lazy person about not working. But God is also concerned that people who desire to work, but who can't work, have opportunities to meet needs. And Naomi and Ruth are in such a situation. They have no land of their own in which to plant grain and harvest. There is no clear path for them towards financial provision to meet their own needs. And in those types of situations, God's heart is revealed in His law. Leviticus 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. God wants His people to plan ahead to make provisions for people who experience legitimate need, to plan ahead so that people can meet their own needs to the degree that they're able. So, my people, plant, plan on reaping your harvest of your fields all the way to the edges. Don't plan on reaping all the way to the edges. Leave the edges for those who need it. And if you drop some grapes while you're harvesting your vineyard, leave them there for people to pick up and use. God considers this kind of intentional kindness just and righteous. Juan David pointed out in preaching meeting this week that it's interesting that God leaves room for generosity. He doesn't specify how much edge is needed in your field. He leaves room for people to be generous with what they're allowing for others. And we see this generosity in Boaz. He goes beyond the law. He ensures that Ruth has plenty and that Ruth doesn't have to work hard to get it. And in this way, Boaz is answering his own prayer. Boaz is praying that Ruth would experience the refuge of God, and then Boaz is turning to act as a source of refuge. Boaz is viewing himself as the answer to his own prayer for Ruth, that in some small way I can be the feathers underneath the wings of God's refuge, and I might provide for you the th very things that I'm praying for. Those who experience God's love turn to love others. We can be an expression of God's loving provision. So if you want to get practical this morning, think about your monthly budget. If you don't have a monthly budget, then the first step would be to make a monthly budget <laughs> and to stick to your monthly budget. Plan how to use your income. Plan in advance. And then leave margin in your monthly budget to be able to meet needs as they come. It's a practical way for us to leave the edges of our field unharvested. When the person can't handle the car repair, or they don't have enough food in the pantry, or they can't make their mortgage payment, 
We can step in because we've planned ahead and we've left the edges of our field unharvested. We can not only know the truth, we can act in light of the truth. And we can do this with our calendars too. We can set aside margin in our calendar so when we get the phone call, we can take it. Or when the person needs a cup of coffee, we can go invest the hour and encourage them. There are practical ways that we can plan ahead so that we can meet the needs of the people around us and to let them know why. Now, having finished her long day in the field, Ruth returns home. And what we find is not just a productive field, not just that God has provided a righteous owner who owns the field, but this particular righteous owner of this particular field also just happens to be a family redeemer. And we'll find out what that is in a moment. Look at verse 18. And Ruth took it up and went into the city, back to Bethlehem, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had after what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Ruth hit the jackpot and Naomi wants to know how. Whose field did you stumble into? How exactly did you come home with this amount of harvest? This man had to be a righteous owner. The edges of his field must have been wide. The man with whom I worked, Naomi, was Boaz. Now recall Naomi's last words from chapter 1. She returns from the land of Moab, a widow. She's lost her two sons. She has a widowed daughter-in-law, and she says to all the people of Bethlehem, where she had come from, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full from Bethlehem to Moab, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We get Naomi. Her circumstances are excruciating, overwhelmed with grief, grief over the death of her husband and her two sons. Her financial situation is impossibly bleak, and she would not, and we would not blame her, be able to picture any future that includes joy. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. God has brought me back empty. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. But when Naomi hears the name of Boaz, I picture her eyes widen and her mouth fall open. Her heart stumble and then leap inside of her chest. Ruth, what name did you just utter? Look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to Ruth, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. With rising energy and with surging strength, Naomi pronounces a glorious blessing upon this worthy man, Boaz. May God bless this man, the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The word for kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a stabilizing, strengthening word. 
Old Testament scholar Daryl Block writes that this word incorporates an entire cluster of ethical and spiritual concepts. You cannot just grab this word with kindness. It includes love, mercy, grace, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, covenant faithfulness is probably the closest we can find. This is a, this is a kind of covenanted, committed love. Naomi comes into this afternoon, numb with disappointment and grief. Sometimes our pain is so crippling we can only see black. But now, as if looking up from the grave she was standing in, she scrambles out of the grave praising God. It's as if she grabs both of Ruth's hands and looks at Ruth in the face with wide eyes and mouth aghast, could it be that God is again our Redeemer? Could it be that God will again restore and provide refuge and strengthen us? Could it be that God is looking favorably upon us again, Ruth? That the Lord is good, that the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now the reality for the narrator and for all the readers is that we see that God has been faithful this whole time. But Naomi can't see that. Ruth is just beginning to see that. Naomi's heart is beginning to soften to the Lord. But what does she mean that Boaz is a family redeemer? God's heart, again, is reflected in God's law. In other words, what we see in God's law is what God values and what God loves. And instructions for the family or the kinsman redeemer describe how relatives can care for their extended family. And here are five things we see in the law that a kinsman or a family redeemer, Boaz, and others like him could do for a family member. They can purchase back land that's been sold outside the family. They can purchase back a family member who's been sold into slavery. They can track down and execute the murderer of a family member. They can receive restitution money on behalf of a dead family member, and they can ensure justice on behalf of a dead family member. These are things that a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer can do in the life of their extended family clan. And these are probably the types of responsibilities and duties that Naomi is hoping, beginning to hope, that maybe, just maybe, God will provide through Boaz for some of these things. That Boaz would be used by God to bring stability and security and provision back into Naomi's life and back into Ruth's life. And this is why her heart is beginning to hope again. She's beginning to see God's hand at work. We've been seeing it. We've been seeing God's hand at work as Ruth happens to glean in a particular field of a particular righteous man. And as that particular man shows up to check on that particular field, he sees a particular woman gleaning in that particular field. And it just so happens that this particular man was not just righteous and not just willing to be helpful to Ruth and Naomi, but by God's hand of provision and refuge, this man is also a close kinsman redeemer. God's hand, God's provision is sometimes mysterious, but it is always faithful. Now, here's what the reader is meant to conclude. There are a lot of just so happens in our lives. There's a lot of mystery in God's provision. And God's provision is sometimes mysterious. It is always faithful. 
depend upon Him. Look at verses 21 to 23. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And that's how chapter 2 ends. The question is, what are you waiting for this Christmas? What are you waiting for? Because there is a minor chord that's included in our waiting for Christmas. There's a darkness to light theme that helps us at Christmas. Because Christmas includes, yes, it includes seasons of easy joy, but it also includes waiting and longing and anticipation. And so we're not just celebrating the first coming of our Messiah, but we're waiting for His second coming, His return, the return of our King. But remember what Casper Ten Boon said to his young daughter, Corey, your father knows what you need and he knows when you need it. The train ticket will be in your hand at the moment that you need it. So what has you waiting this Christmas? What are you waiting for this Christmas? Are you waiting for a relationship to be reconciled? Maybe you're waiting to see how your body might respond to this latest treatment. Or perhaps you're waiting to see whether your adult child will return to Christ. Or maybe you're waiting for your preoccupied parent to lean in and give you the attention that you're longing for. Or maybe you're waiting for your heart to heal after a betrayal. Or you're waiting for that sinful pattern to loosen its grip on your life. Or you're waiting for God to provide the spouse or the child or the friend that you've been longing for. I think that Ruth chapter 2 is an invitation to God's people. That even when God's hand is mysterious, even when his provision is mysterious, it is always faithful. And Ruth chapter 2 is an invitation to depend upon him, to walk with him, to sit with him. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Ruth 2 is an invitation to walk with God, to depend upon Him, to sink your anchor deep into Him. It's an invitation to find refuge under His wings, and it's an invitation to be a source of refuge for the people around you. It's an invitation to anticipate the hand of God in your life, to look for it. You know He's faithful, therefore you know He's working. The question is only... Where is he working? It is not if. He has not forgotten you. He is at work in your life. The question is where? What is he doing? How can I see him? How can I depend upon him? He is at work behind the curtain causing your life and his purposes for your life to surge forward. Depend upon him. Here's how Corey Ten Boone ends her story, The Hiding Place. God can turn any loss, any loss into glory. God can turn any loss into glory. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God, we look to you now and pray that by your word, by your spirit, you would strengthen your people, that you would help us to depend on you. Your provision is sometimes mysterious, but always faithful in our lives. And we pray for the strength to walk faithfully with one another, to look to you together and to anticipate your work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.